Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The big news is the big sell-off last week, the biggest weekly drop on the S&P 500 in more than two years, and a big backup in Treasury yields as well. Well through 3% on 10-year Treasuries, Tom, and the equity market yeah. very much softer through the whole of last week. I want to bring in the guests, shall we? Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, and Chris Verone, Strategus Research Partners, Head of Technical Analysis. Chris, let's begin with you. Was that a short-term sentiment shift, a regime change, or none of the above? Above yet. I think the longer term regime is still very much intact, but in the very short term, I'm not convinced sentiment is as flushed out or as stressed as it needs to be. I'm not convinced this market has cleared yet. While Friday was certainly bad in terms of the headline numbers, volume wasn't terribly pronounced. Um, the internals weren't as stressed as we'd like to see. That often marks uh, interim lows. So I think it's too early to say that we're, quote, there just yet. Something that you've touched on is something I was questioning through the whole of last week. Typically, if things are really ugly, high yields got something to scream about. We didn't see that in a huge, huge way, Chris. Yeah, I mean, high yield was down last week, but it didn't lead lower. So I think ultimately, if we're going to see a major shift in this regime, credit likely has to weaken. The fact that we're not seeing that yet actually gives us some confidence that the longer term picture is still intact here. Now, that doesn't help us in the short term. And I think in the short term, there's probably more pain or more weakness before this is over. But so long as credit remains at least reasonably contained, I'm reluctant to say that the longer term picture is changing meaningfully yet. Uh, Marcus Ashworth, when you were trying to explain the sell-off to um, some individuals maybe not that closely affiliated with Wall Street, and you explained to them that it's off the back of better economic data, better wage growth in the United States, it's just meant the bond market has finally had to catch up. What are your thoughts, Marcus? Yeah, hi. I, I think it's very much that the uh, two-year yield has been telling us something loud and clear shouting at us for, for months now, and the 10-year and 30-year yields has really not responded. And it's led some people to be in this sort of false belief that this is a harbinger of impending recession. It's quite the reverse. You know, we've finally seen the the, the wage print that uh, everyone has been expecting to see, and that has led to the uh, realization that inflation and the Phillips curve is going to come come up up into view. Um, you know, hiding behind as it has been a very strong economy with very little obvious signs of uh, of real strength in inflation. That now looks to be normalizing. The curve therefore needs to normalize, which means it should be steeper. And I think I can agree with Chris that, you know, having traded bonds for the best part of 30 years and, and, and been on the wrong end of, of many a bear market from time to time, you know, you have to sense whether or not this has got some legs to it. And I still don't think we're quite fully flushed out. And he's spot on to say that the fact that credit hasn't moved means that, that the market sentiment hasn't really shifted here. We're not talking about a bond route. We might get to get 3% in 10-year yields. We might get to, um, I think, in some ways, more importantly, 3.3, just around that area for 30 years where from whence it came in, in, in 2016. That's really why I think we we need to be uh, and test, and I think we'll probably bounce before then. Yeah. Um, Europe is doing better this morning. It's the reason why Treasuries aren't, aren't following on with their sell-off. And the key thing in Europe is peripherals. Italy, we've got an election in less than a month's time. They're actually doing better. They're tightening. So that's why I think giving a little bit of stability just as we walk into uh, the U.S. market. However, if U.S. Treasuries want to go and high on yield, out they'll go. 
Christopher Ryan? Yeah, you know, I think um, we're spot on when we talk about 325 as a target for 10-year yields uh, over the next number of months here. It doesn't mean they won't see uh, 260 or 270 first, but I think ultimately uh, higher is the path uh, that yeah. we're headed. Now, I would frankly be more worried if equities were selling off and bond yields were moving materially lower. I think that would be a sign that right. we're still stuck in that old regime. So higher bond yields, what, tactically, it's probably a source of stress. I think structurally, it's right. a decent signal. One of the things, Christopher, on you and I do in technical analysis is we have a great respect for people that do a lot of back testing. Mm. And the back testing is a correction is 10% down, a bear market is 18% down. We're down 4.6% from the peak on S&P futures. Is a correction still minus 10% or is there a new number in your head for a correction? I'm, I'm in the old school. <laughs> it's still 10%. We look at these things very simply. Uh, a bull market, you're making money. A bear market, you're losing money. And a correction, you're not sure yet. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, um, S&P down four or four and a half, while it sounds pronounced and it sounds meaningful, it it's hasn't not. happened in two years. And it's not. It's, it's normal. Thank you. John, um, this is really important. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sorry. 4.62% used to be a day at the races. And I think we need to remember there are countless examples of exceptional years where there's some meaningful drawdowns. 2013 is an example, exceptional year, uh, S&P up 30, but you had two 7% pullbacks during the, the year. The best year for the bull market in this bull market was one of the worst years for treasuries. Precisely. Uh, and I think 2013, from that perspective, is a useful roadmap. It's not the perfect roadmap, but it's a useful roadmap. I think 96, 97 is also pretty interesting here. Now, let's remember, for the last six years, the S&P has done better than earnings have done. The street right now is looking for about 15% out of earnings in 2018. Is this the year where the market underperforms the economy? It's possible. Looking okay. at the screen right now, um, the pullback deepens, Tom. The Dow down by That's Marcus. 350. Marcus is driving it lower. The S&P 500, <laughs> negative 20 points. So yeah. if you're looking for some stability in the equity market, yeah. it's not there yet, Tom. You know, Marcus Asher, thank you so much. Uh, writing for Bloomberg Gadfly, look for his good work. A chart paragraph, chart paragraph out on Bloomberg Gadfly today. Mr. Ashworth at our studios in London. Christopher Verone, of Strategus Research as well. There were 7,312 books of the crisis. In Fed We Trust was one that actually sliced through the zeitgeist and added serious value. Ben Bernanke's War on the Great Panic. David Wessel, writing for years with a journal, who landed happy in Washington when Glenn Hutchins said, okay, we got to set up a fiscal and monetary policy division at Brookings. And the tour de force of Mr. Wessel has been the signing of Chairman Bernanke and announced a few days ago that Chair Yellen today will join Mr. Wessel at the Brookings Institute. David Wessel joins us right now. David, congratulations on this. How do you attract with your charm Chairman Bernanke and Chair Yellen together? 
That's a good question. I think you probably should ask them. I think what we've tried to do is create an environment at Brookings where they can continue the kind of work they did as public servants, but in a more academic atmosphere. It is pretty exciting, and, and we're really looking forward to seeing what kind of book Janet Yellen will write. I think it'll be very different than the one Ben Bernanke wrote, because yeah. her four years as Fed chair have been quite different than his eight years. Absolutely. Maybe you could title it Slack, and that will get some attention uh, as, <laughs> as, as well. David, will they I'll be... that to her. Will they be down the hallway from? Paint us the picture of the physical structure here. Is it a, is it a hallway, and they've got one office here and one office there, or do you have to keep them apart? Uh, we're on the eighth floor of the Brookings Building on Massachusetts Avenue near Dupont Circle, yeah. and uh, Ben Bernanke got the corner office. <laughs> I I had the really nice, spacious office next to him. Uh, but I traded it for Janet Yellen. So she'll be right next door to him, and I'm a couple doors down in a more more modest Brookings Scholar office, yeah, which but, is the one I deserve. And when Chairman Powell joins you, you'll be down in the basement next to the heater. No, we're, 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 we're aiming for Mario Draghi next. That would be very good. I, we'll look forward to that. David, let's uh, turn to monetary policy. Chairman Powell is not a monetary PhD. What kind of vice chairman does Chairman Powell need? Well, I think it would be fantastic if Chairman Powell got a monetary economist, somebody who has a Ph.D. in economics and has some experience. Uh, We'll have to see whether the Trump White House agrees with that. I think, as you know, the other big job up for grabs is the New York Fed job, and so the presidency of the New York Fed. So uh, it's important, it seems to me, that one of those two jobs go to someone who has some experience in monetary policy. David, it was really interesting, the final act of Chair Yellen on Friday to cap the Wells Fargo assets, essentially capping its growth. Do you see the Federal Reserve under Chair Powell as relatively different to under Chair Yellen? Do we see a different regulatory regime? Is that the first of many more acts to come from the Fed, or was that really the top of the regulatory curve? I think the Fed sent a pretty powerful signal on Friday that they are going to hold directors of the banks accountable when the banks screw up. Uh, of course, Powell was part of that decision. I think it would have happened this week if they hadn't got the paperwork done and Wells Fargo hadn't agreed to it on Friday. My gut is that Powell will be just as aggressive at Yellen at the enforcement side, but he may not be quite as resistant to changes in Dodd-Frank as she would have been. Uh, but. Uh, so far, you know, the Trump administration has talked a lot of a talk about doing away with Dodd-Frank, and there's some House Republicans who want to do it. But when you look at what they've actually proposed in the administration, the National Economic Council and the Treasury, there have been pretty modest reforms. What's the base case at Brookings? What are you expecting, David? About what? Regulatory change. Oh, I expect that uh, this is the high watermark of regula- uh, regulatory uh, uh, enforcement after, I think that across the government, you see the, the government pulling back. I think the Fed may be the, the, the break, the resistance on stuff going on in the rest of the government. Tell us, David, about what Chairman Bernanke has been writing about and what you would like to see Chair Yellen write about. She is more than independent-minded. She'll don real white about what she wants to write about. But what is the curiosity you have in her first essays? Well, Chairman Bernanke has been quite focused on 
what led to the financial crisis and how we got out of it. After all, he cut his academic teeth on writing about the Great Depression, and so he's long been interested in this stuff. I expect and I'm interested to see what Janet Yellen writes about two things. One, she's long been interested in the labor market. Uh, Why does it work the way it does? Why do some firms pay more wages than they have to? Why has labor force participation been so disappointing lately? Uh, What's the role of women in the labor market? So I would imagine that that would be uh, continue to be your interest. And then, of course, it's hard to escape uh, the fact that she's the first woman Fed chair in an economics profession where women are really woefully underrepresented. So I think that people will be interested, whether she wants to write about that or not, what her experiences have been, the only woman in her class of PhDs at Yale and so forth. Yeah, I mean, these are huge, huge issues that we see right now. Are are we free and clear from where you said, I use a chart, David Wessel, all the time, which is just the Fed funds target rate adjusted for inflation, and we're still on the edge of ultra-accommodative by a Taylor Rule uh, proxy. We're, we're still accommodative, ultra-accommodative. How far does the Fed have to move to get anywhere near a neutral rate? Well, I think the conventional wisdom is something close to 3%. Uh, I think it's been a bit baffling why wages haven't grown, grown gone up more given how low unemployment is. So I think the Fed will be watching that carefully. And, of course, there was this new evidence on Friday that wages are beginning to rise. But as you know, Tom, the the consensus among economists, including those in the Fed, is the neutral real rate, that rate that will prevail when all is calm in the economy, has come down quite a bit. And so I think that will affect the Fed's uh, judgment. In the time we've got left with you, I want you to talk about what Mr. Hutchins did. You're at Brookings. It's an acclaimed think tank. You go over and set up this economic tank. You have this huge announcement of Bernanke and Yellen uh, joining you um, as well. What did Mr. Hutchins want to accomplish when he donated money large to Brookings? Um, I think I think Glenn Hutchins wanted to improve the amount of research and thoughtful policy work that goes on in fiscal and monetary policy. And, you know, Yellen and Bernanke are clearly our stars, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, But I think the thing that's impressed me about Glenn is he's really the model donor. He gave us a substantial sum of money to get us off for five years and said, I want people who I respect to stay, you're doing good work. Um, he's not one of these donors who has a particular agenda, either on his personal pocketbook or his political agenda. He's trying to influence us. Yeah. So it's been really remarkable. And as you know, that's not always the norm in think tanks. Yeah. Sometimes donors really want to tie down their, their, their centers to pursue their yeah. own particular interests. And David Wessel, for all of us in economics, just congratulations. Chair Yellen, joining Chairman Bernanke at Mr. Wessel's Hutchins Center, the Brookings Institution, just absolutely Uh, An extraordinary announcement. Really looking forward to Chair Yellen's first essays. Mr. Wessel again with the Brookings Institution. We turn now uh, to Morgan Stanley's Chief of U.S. Public Policy, uh, Michael Zezis, who's got a really interesting pedigree. Not only is he a CFA, but he's done the usual political cred as well, including the, including the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Did you study with James K. Galbraith in, uh, he in was Texas? The, I, w- he was not one of my—I never had class with him, but he really? was there when I— Yeah. 
I mean, that's a really interesting and twisted program as well and really fits <laughs> in right now yeah. with what we're seeing within public policy. What yeah. is the public policy on NAFTA after the meetings in Montreal? Well, uh, yeah, I think that remains to be seen explicitly, but um, what the U.S. is asking for um, is something that I think really is focused uh, around the bottom line of kind of shrinking trade deficits. And I think it's unclear what both sides are willing to accept that would actually practically do that. Uh, you know, in our view, there's something ultimately that can be delivered to kind of um, get the negotiation across the finish line, which I think can allow the U.S. to talk about trade deficits perspectively being shrunk. Uh, something like upping the destination of origin rules around autos, for example, where the U.S. thinks it's got a competitive advantage around uh, auto labor and manufacturing. Um, something like that, which, you know, ultimately in game theory terms is, is something where both sides can kind of claim victory. But, you know, it's not evident yet precisely <clears throat> yeah. what that is. And the, and the public policy is to save face on NAFTA for all three parties, right? Yeah, I mean, more or less, uh, you know, f what the or what what the U.S. wants here, if you were to kind of take the president at his word, uh, you know, is free and fair trade. And he tends to always define it in terms of shrinking the trade deficit. So uh, I think whatever has to be delivered is something that you can feel like you can credibly tell your base supporters that this is something that's going to shrink the trade deficit, as opposed to something where you know, when they're talking about the border adjustment tax or some other type of tariffing regime, which could demonstrably actually shrink a trade deficit, at least in, in mathematical terms, those things seem to be off the table. It's something you need to be able to credibly make the argument as opposed to put it on paper. So we've got these big, significant issues that need to be addressed. And to address them effectively, you would hope for stability elsewhere. But we're talking about getting to Thursday now. Yeah. Never mind getting to the next round of NAFTA negotiations. Can they agree to keep the government open? And can they come to any kind of agreement around an immigration plan? Can they do those two things, Michael? I think they can agree to keep the government open. Listen, I think the base case on all these government shutdowns, because there are so many opportunities for government shutdowns, is that they tend to muddle through because the actual instance of shutdowns is pretty small. And really, when you're thinking about it from a market's perspective, um, a shutdown on its own to us is not terribly consequential, hasn't had a giant feed-through effect to GDP. Um, what matters more is what that what is that signal telling us about other policies uh, that may or may not be stimulative? If this were a year where we were getting really excited about something like infrastructure policy, which we're not. And why why aren't we? Well, there's political I mean, this, reasons. John, just, I don't yeah. need to interrupt, but this John Farrell, this came up like four times this weekend. What, yeah. what is the why? So there's a, there's a political reason and there's a policy reason. The political reason is that we just don't think there's enough time for the Democrats and Republicans to bridge their differences. They got differences on labor issues, environmental issues, and they got differences on how they want to fund it, right? Where the Democrats are willing to raise the gas tax or other revenues, the Republicans want to kind of redirect money from elsewhere. But even if that weren't a problem, the policy issue is the way it appears to be constructed right now, it's not clear to us that this is actually a stimulus. All it really kind of boils down to is, is there going to be net new money in the economy after this policy? And we haven't seen a full proposal yet. But if you're talking about something where you've got $200 billion from the federal government, where that's not necessarily going to be new money, it's going to be redirected from Amtrak or Tiger Grants or something like that. And then it requires state and local governments to partner. 
um, and to sign on to certain conditions. Yeah. It's not clear to us that I, the, that those governments are going to sign on. They've got easier incentives if they just kind of go go with the traditional funding mechanisms they've been using. Brilliantly described, John Farrell. I would point out to someone who has tattooed to his brain the time from Coventry to Paddington Station or whatever in London <laughs> that with great respect for the courage of first responders, we've had three major Amtrak accidents yeah, true. in a cup of coffee, and it's not funny. I mean, I, I'm, I, would, I would suggest, uh, Michael, that we've almost reached a point with, you know, rusted bridges but, and Amtrak. But you raise, we're, but we're you at the raise point where this is not funny. This, this no. is serious, Michael. Yeah. At the yeah. same time, though, when you break down the country into individual states and think about where there needs to be the biggest infrastructure spend, could you assume and conclude that actually it's the Northeast and it's blue states that probably need the most <clears> money spent on them? I think it's fair. Your higher tax jurisdictions are the ones with the most deferred capital. You know, whether or not that becomes a political sticking point is unclear. But I will say that one thing that we threw out there when we were doing our outlook for policy for the year is that when it comes the midterm election is one of the things that can unlock this. Right. If the Democrats are able to take control, arguably the president and the Democrats are on the same page with how to fund this. And not necessarily concerned as much about deficits. Now, you got tax reform done because Republicans seem to be okay with deficits for tax cuts. So far, they're signaling that they're not okay with deficits for increased spending. Uh, That view gets marginalized, obviously, if the Democrats take control of Congress. I would mention, John, that there can be sea change things in infrastructure to change debate. And I would go back to Staplehurst in Kent, England, in the train derailment that Charles Dickens was in, that he was never the same after that train You really crash. are going back some time. I, I'm doing that just to impress you with my... I, I hope I'm, I pronounce... I'm actually thoroughly impressed. Tom yes, yes. actually it covered was, it. Tom, Tom covered yeah. it at the time. No, I, it was I a said, horrific I said last week accident. that he graduated with Keynes in, in 1902 <laughs> at Cambridge University. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Michael's like, what are they talking about? But this, I'm sorry, these accidents drive the conversation. Yeah. We've had three Amtrak accidents, Michael, and we don't have infrastructure. Yeah, it's fair. I'm, I mean, listen, I'm dazzled by that. There are a lot of urgent things that you would think would kind of spur on Congress at the moment, and right now just don't seem to be working. I mean, we, obviously, the 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 need to take care of the the Dreamers and the DACA issue is something that kind of right. keeps getting rolled forward because it is embroiled in all of these other short-term <clears throat> government funding fights. You got to come back, but very quickly here with your CFA uh, uh, understanding of a dynamics, are we anywhere near a yield lift that changes the calculus in Washington? I don't think so. Um, the because I think the the issue with kind of yields going uh, the yields increasing and kind of feeding through to the budget and causing concerns with conservative Republicans. That seems to be the type of thing okay. that doesn't get reflected until beyond the midterms. Okay, Michael, thank you so much. Michael Zazis with Morgan Stanley. Thanks, guys. Uh, with us this morning. Bond people live in another world than the things we quote. One would be Margie Patel of Wells Capital Management. Who joins us? And in, in Margie, I look at the the Bloomberg Barclays High Yield Corporate Index, where I get a coupon along the way, and I'm down a lot less than just looking at full faith and credit. Is your high yield market immune from what we've seen in the bond pullback? 
Uh, well, it's holding its own, as I would expect, because with really low defaults, call it 2%, and still a big premium, 3.5% or so more than treasuries, uh, it's able to hold its value much better. And as far as total return yeah. year-to-date, it's slightly positive. Let me make this clear, folks. As, as Ms. Patel just said, 3.5, you get 350 basis points, 3.5 percentage points of yield along the way. More than you do with government bonds, Pim. Yes. All right. Well, can I just, I just want to switch to the stock market because we're going to get it open in just a, f a moment here. And, Margie, you've been uh, quoted as saying that you see the bull market is continuing. Does what happened last week change your mind at all? No, because it was actually rather puzzling is earnings reports have been great. And even the FANG um, earnings, which were reported last week, the, the large um, cap tech companies had uh, very, very good earnings. And uh, before that, the market spiked up maybe up 7% in four weeks. So to me, it's a natural correction of something that uh, looked pretty speculative to me. So I think earnings look pretty good for the rest of the year. That's been validated, at least so far, especially in the tech sector. So do we have any more to give up before the bull market continues? Well, it could. We've had 3% corrections. Now it looks like we may be uh, maximum, say, a 5% correction. I don't think there's much more than that because the fundamentals are good. The economy's growing. Rates, although the curve's flattened a lot, it still um, doesn't provide much competition compared to stocks that have earnings growth from here, and oh. a lot of them do. All right. So that if you've been planning for this or you have uh, sort of looked into the future and said, you know, stocks don't grow to the sky, uh, would you be deploying your cash now or maybe wait until a pullback to the 50-day moving average? That would, that would be another 50 points lower uh, from where we are right now, 27.11, let's say. Well, I think actually I bought a little on Friday because I thought that provided some opportunity. I don't think there's a lot of downside to this, and some of the names have reacted uh, pretty sharply, especially those that had been up a lot. So I think um, now is yeah. as good a time to get in. I noticed in the 30-year bond that I've enjoyed losing two years of coupon in the last number of weeks. How do you define a bear market within full faith and credit paper, Margie? Well, it does appear as if we may be starting on at least a mild bear market, not to say rates are going to skyrocket up two percentage yeah. points, but another 50 basis points across the curve looks pretty yeah. likely because we've broken out of that trading range. My, my rule of thumb, Pim, is three years coupon is when spouses start screaming when they look at the bond portfolio. <laughs> well, three years coupon. Yeah, we, but clearly you don't manage long-term money. No, because you don't, don't have any. No, well, that's there's that as there, well. Yeah, Mark. I mean, I just want to ask you. I'm in the high yield tuition fund, is where I am. <laughs> yeah, well, join the club. But uh, no, the re the reason I say that in terms of uh, long term is because if you're a pension plan manager or an insurance company uh, executive, you're worried about more than the next three years. So you're a natural buyer. Yes, and I think there's continuing demand for long-duration, long-maturity bonds, even at these low levels, because they've moved up maybe 50 to 100 basis points in Treasury's investment grade, so that's at least more yield, so it's taken a little bit of the pressure off those kinds of people that need to invest every day. Are you buying this morning? Uh, well, uh, not. I'm just seeing how things sort them out. But yes, I think it'd be a better day to buy on the stock side than to sell. Sure. Is that because the Patriots lost, Margie? <laughs> Margie Patel, thank you so much. She's you know up in Boston and 
you know, as an, a wonderful history. She's probably met Tom Brady, you know, I, I would think that. Margie Patel, thank you so much for the Wells Capital Management uh, this morning. And Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.